On today's episode, I interviewed Dominic Diagnostino, a professor at the University of South Florida who focuses on medical biochemistry, physiology, neuroscience, and neuropharmacology. Dominic is an expert in ketogenic diet and ketogenic therapies. Time still work? Yeah, it's good. Yep. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, thanks, thanks. for uh, taking the time to connect. I really appreciate it. Sure, absolutely. Thanks for your interest. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, as I mentioned, I've listened to uh, your podcasts on from Ferris and Joe Rogan. I've listened to all of them a couple times each. So, big fan of yours. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. Um, did, did you say you're traveling today? Uh, well, yeah, kind of in the just getting ready to travel <laughs> actually I, yeah uh yeah but but it's good i have a, a good time right now locked in but i will be awesome. uh if i do go if you email me uh like after this we're going to be in southeast asia we're actually like uh, doing some dive research there for oh, cool. the next three or four weeks so uh i'm not sure if i'll have internet or connection over there but just let you know just in case uh if you were to write this and you're emailing me, I, I may be a little slow to respond, but I'm going to try to work on getting connections over there. Okay, cool. Have you, have you been over there before? Yeah, yeah. My uh, Actually, we did our honeymoon in, uh, we were in Philippines and Borneo through Malaysia, Cambodia, all those places. My wife likes to travel a lot, and we kind of, yeah. we uh, have a, a, a dive, uh, dive research project that we're doing we're collecting some data out there although it's really honestly it's really like a vacation but uh yeah <laughs> we, we pack on we have some research too that we do when we're out there so we kind of helps us write it off as a as a business trip too <laughs> nice nice not not a bad way to live yeah yeah it's just uh usually we have to coordinate with different dive people out there and different subjects that are part of the research but that's all fun for us so it's, it's yeah it's actually just all fun, really. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, it sounds pretty cool. Um, so tell me about that. Uh, the, what, what are you guys going to be researching? Uh, we have a project that's looking at uh, the effects of a nutritional ketosis with either a diet or a ketone supplement or the combination of the two uh, for oxygen toxicity symptoms. Uh the most serious being uh, a seizure that would occur underwater. Yeah. It's actually a limitation for like the special operations divers. The community that we work with, they use uh, as diving advances, diving technology advances, they use these closed circuit rebreathers where they breathe high oxygen. And that prevents nitrogen from dissolving in your blood and prevents decompression sickness. And yeah. uh, And it's also... If you're using these equipment, uh, it's very good. There's a stealth component because there's no bubbles. Like you can swim right. across a very calm, quiet lake and pop up on the other side, and you don't see bubbles coming across the lake. So, so that's mm -hmm. the advantage uh, from a from a marine biologist's point of view. The bubbles, uh, it's it's super quiet when you're breathing underwater, and there's no bubbles, so you can get close to. My wife is a marine biologist. She studies the giant manta rays. So when we do our research. It, it allows researchers to get closer to habitat without 
disrupting it with noise and bubbles and things like that. So, uh, but the community that we, they just kind of do it for fun. They're just kind of like tech, techie divers. And, uh, but we're basically, you know, changing their diet, changing their nutrition to mitigate some of the symptoms that they get. They get like twitching and eye twitching and kind of like precursors. Uh, they're actually precursors to an impending seizure. So when they feel these things, they, uh, they will kind of reverse <laughs> their, uh, their, their, adjust their, their depth or if they have the ability to adjust their breathing gas, gases. So. Interesting. So they, so there's these yeah. kind of, there's, there's these triggers where they say, oh man, there's a twitch. That means if I don't make an adjustment, I'm going to have a seizure. Uh, yeah, pretty much. They, a lot of these guys, they tend to push the limits on, you know, how far and long they can stay under because they feel they've done, you know, many of them like decades of training. So they kind of push the limits. Uh, some of them are, you know, prior like special ops guys. Uh, yeah, it's very dangerous to have a seizure underwater, especially if you, you know, you spit out your regulator, unless you have a mask that's like firmly adhered to your face. Uh, we are doing a study at Duke University that recently got approved where we'll, we'll actually be pushing people to a seizure, but it'll be simulated dive inside a hyperbaric chamber. Huh. So they're in a chamber and they have two guys on either side. And they're like, if you think of a big deep bathtub inside a, hyper, a big hyperbaric chamber, so they go underwater. So it simulates the underwater and they exercise underwater. And they're also monitoring EEG activity, their brain activity, yeah. you know, uh, with and without ketosis. And they basically push the guys till they're about to have a seizure. And then they look at the latency to seizure, the latency, mm -hmm. well, latency to the EEG activity that would be indicative of an impending seizure. And then they, and then they, you know, will stop the study uh, and pull them out. And they look at how long they can, their brains can actually function uh, normally and efficiently uh, with high pressure oxygen until they start to see some uh, biochemical and physiological biomarkers of an impending seizure, then they'll stop the study. So I, I was actually very uh, – <laughs> I, I thought it would never get approved by the ethics committee. But yeah, I right. But it actually got approved, and uh, and we're doing that with the, the special operations community or the Office of Ninger Research. So that's, that's another – so that's being done in the lab, and then we have another project being done out in the field with recreational divers, and then we have another project with uh, Navy Special Warfare, which would be the SEAL. So, wow, a lot going on, and that's really cool. I, didn't, yeah. I, I guess I forgot your so your wife's a marine biologist, so you guys must have a lot to talk about. Yeah, well, actually, her that's more of like her. She did her PhD in Budapest, Hungary, on the brains of sharks and rays. And yeah. she she discovered uh, she made the discovery that manta the giant manta rays have like an unusually large brain that's yeah. like it's literally if you chart brain size to body weight of all fish it's like a, like a huge outlier it's like way off the graph you have to like right. actually extend the graph to like put the the brain size on there so she, that was her finding and huh. and then you know it was like you know she asked like why do they have these huge brains so then her finding after her phd was to study their cognitive function and their sensory Function and one of the studies that we did in um, in Atlantis uh, in the Bahamas is and my job in this was to carry these, these big mirrors underwater and hold them underwater and do the videography. Uh, mm -hmm. As the manta rays swim up to the mirrors, they do something called contingency checking. 
So not too many animals do this. Like, you know, the great apes do it. The the elephant does it. Uh, interestingly, the magpie does it. Dolphins can do it. So that's about it, I think. So we have some evidence, and she published it, and it was actually highlighted in the journal Nature that they have behaviors consistent with contingency checking, which is consistent with self-awareness. So for a fish hmm. <laughs> to be self-aware, that's uh, – and when she published that, she got, you know, some people – you know, half the people were like, I told you so. This is like a big finding. And the other half of the people who study the more advanced were like, there's no way this is possible. You know, more studies need to be done. And obviously more studies need to be done. The N was small. It was just an N of two because it's very hard to get – to find manta rays. And it's one of the only places in the world where they're in captivity. So we I right. know, so you got a chance to study them in captivity. So that was kind of her. She's actually a behavioral neuroscientist, and that's her. She's an assistant professor in psychology and neurocognitive sciences here at USF. Um, so she was actually working with me at the College of Medicine. But when we got married, uh, they have to, you know, because of nepotism, we can't even work together. Yeah. The school is very, so she had to go get her own grants and branch right. off. So that's what she does. But she actually to be honest, like she's the one collecting most of the ketone data. So she has about a half dozen, you know, patents on ketones and, and is really kind of in the trenches, I would say, like doing the actual like bench work and field work and stuff. And, you know, my time nowadays is like 80% of spending. I mean, I'm in the lab today, you know, doing mm-hmm. some assays and stuff, but usually I'm just at my desk and doing paperwork for grants. And but when I can, I can break away and, you know, we do some projects together like this. So, well, you said you're at the lab today doing. Uh, I came in actually. I'm, I'm putting together some packages to send to uh, various collaborators. So what has evolved over the years is that there's an explosion of interest in nutritional ketosis and ketone supplementation. So I'm actually uh, aliquoting out ketone esters and various ketone supplements and packaging them. Uh, in addition to various uh, assay measurement kits to send to Europe, to send to Budapest, to send uh, to like Yale University, uh, Duke, uh, like all the major universities, uh, many of them we collaborate with, they have become an extension of our lab. So they have various technologies and resources that we don't have to do in some capacities. So we actually uh, now collaborate and maybe you could say outsource uh, we're constant. Like my students are in the lab now. I don't force them, but they're in the lab now, <laughs> running experiments. Yeah. But we we also uh, branch out and run experiments uh, all over the all over the United States and all over the world now. And I, I tend, I'm the one that kind of puts together their care packages. Like uh, there's studies being done at Yale, and I formulate the diet in the lab, and then I package it and like send it on ice to them so they can use it. So a lot of what I do is diet formulations. Gotcha. Gotcha. And it sounds like there's been a big increase uh, in interest with that too. Yeah, it's been it's been really huge, actually. So I I don't have the bandwidth to like, you know, do all this work, but uh, but it, it helps if we can just you know design the diets and design you know help with the experimental protocol and tell people how to run the study, and then they can kind of use their resources at their facility, their manpower, their labor their animals and we can kind of oversee it uh, from our location. And it's good too, because, you know, if all the research is coming out of our lab, you want, you want the researchers, you want the research to come out of multiple labs 
that right. really don't have a vested interest. You know, we do have some, you know, uh, intellectual property on uh, um, various, you know, uh, things that we've designed and synthesized, you know, diets and things like that. So it's good to have completely non-biased groups that have published outside of the ketogenic world and to run these studies and have it blinded and for them yeah. to just collect the data. So that's that's kind of what we're doing. Strengthens the overall understanding, right? Yeah, and, and it really helps kind of validate it. You know, science is – you see results. You probably, you know, see a lot of articles about uh, – there's a lot of pressure to publish in science. There's a lot of pressure – to basically get the results that your grant is funding you to get, right? So, uh, and, and mm-hmm. that can, uh, in some cases, you know, I think more more often than not, it's it's biasing the data, it's biasing the selection of the uh, the data, and even the selection of the subjects, you know, and, and right. even, uh, the researchers. So it's it's really important for if you're trying to advance an idea to basically have people that you don't even select that come to you and say, well, we want to validate some of these things and, you know, we'll do it blinded and you send us the diets and, you know, we'll, we'll do the, the measurements here to see if, you know, what you're, you're studying is actually valid in our lab. So it helps right. me understand, really get to the truth of what's, uh, of what's working, what's not working to really identify specific diets and specific formulations of ketone supplements that have the highest therapeutic efficacy for different things. Awesome. And we study about 12 different things now. In the beginning, uh, like I said, it was oxygen toxicity seizures. That start, and we, we still study that. And that was like about 10 years ago. But now we do so many other things, including cancer. All day I was at the Moffitt Cancer Center giving talks and meeting with people over there because they're developing a whole center uh, metabolic treatment center, and the cornerstone of that center is actually going to be uh, nutritional ketosis to help the people that will be on uh, immune-based therapies. The ketogenic diet can enhance the, uh, the the efficacy of some of these immune-based therapies. So we're working uh, with them to use nutritional interventions as an adjuvant to enhance their existing therapies. Oh, wow. And I want to hear about what the other 11 are, but really quick question, just mm-hmm. to take a couple steps back. So we're talk- we were talking about going to uh, Southeast Asia to do dive research and, yeah. and supplement oxygen toxicity to prevent seizures underwater because it, 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 it allows the stealth component of using a rebreather um, at, at greater depths. And I remember yeah. you talking about that in a, in a couple other podcasts. I think it was a couple of years ago. So wondering if you can share if there's like how these studies specifically with the rebreather have evolved, if if at all over the last couple of years, you know, have there been um, any findings? Have they been tweaked at all, or are there, you know, are there new ways that we're we're testing it? Yeah, um, well, this started for me about ten years ago with uh, when I finished my PhD at uh, Rutgers University, or UMDNJ up there, mm-hmm. sort of in the northeast towards your direction. Uh, I did it on the brain's response to hypoxia. So uh, I, you would, my focus was the um, neural control of autonomic regulation. So what, how, how your brain changes your physiology in response to uh, environmental extremes. In this case, it would be low oxygen. And then uh, I was really focusing on hypoxia 
and then as a postdoctoral fellow, I switched and studied hyperoxia, which only really occurs uh, in the context of the special operations community and also with hyperbaric oxygen therapy. And the military knows that seizures occur because of these high pressures of oxygen that can, you know, whenever we leave Earth, basically, or, or you know, ground level and go undersea or in the space environment. So one of the projects I was on was a, a Mars analog project with NASA over the summer on that. And that's we're still analyzing our data from that mission. Um, so we don't really understand, you know, how these physiological extremes impact uh, brain function and overall physiological function. So I developed, uh, as my postdoctoral fellowship, developed very unique technologies that are not anywhere else in the United States or in the world, actually. So one of the technologies was a, uh, a atomic force microscope uh, and a laser scanning microscope. An atomic fo force microscope has the scanning resolution of an electron microscope, but you can use it on living tissue. And a laser confocal microscope can optically section uh, brain cells. So you can look inside the cell and look at the mitochondria, for example. So these technologies were, my project was to adapt these technologies for use inside environmental chambers, hyperbaric chambers, that can simulate these extreme environments, whether it be the undersea environment that the warfighter special ops guy would encounter, or top of Mount Everest. So we have chambers we can pull a vacuum to simulate the top of Mount Everest, or uh, an extravehicular activity, it's called an EVA, that astronauts will do when they, for example, go outside the space station. So we can simulate all these environments inside the chamber, and then we have uh, these microscopes inside the chamber where we can actually look at the cells and see what happens, and then we have physiological equipment inside the chamber where we can do radio telemetry and measure brain activity, um, cardiac activity, respiratory activity of freely moving animals inside the chamber. So understanding the cellular, molecular, and physiological effects of these extreme environments, like the, you know, down to the signal transduction pathways to, you know, heart rate, so everything there and in between, uh, as I got a better understanding of what the brain was doing, what the body was doing, you know, I was testing drugs. I was testing, you know, pharmaceuticals and things like that. And I discovered the ketogenic diet about eight or nine years ago, just about 10 years ago. Really, I started, you know, playing with it myself about 10 years ago. And it was about eight or nine years ago that I got a large federal grant to actually um, study the effects of nutritional ketosis because it was used for many different seizure disorders. So I got a grant to study the effects of nutritional ketosis as a countermeasure to enhance physiological and cognitive resilience in these extreme environments. And then that, it was really sort of that grant and a number of observations that we made, uh, we were only able to make in these unique technologies that we developed in the lab, these hyperbaric atomic force microscopes, for example. Uh, it was the observation with these technologies that we realized that changing the fuel source from glucose to ketones um, or a combination of, you know, uh, ketones as an alternative energy source, that it activates all these neuroprotective pathways. 
So, you know, your brain's like a hybrid engine, right? It's, uh, you know, it can use glucose, you know, in a fed state, normal diet, 100% of brain energy metabolism is coming from glucose. But most people didn't realize, actually, since 1967, we didn't realize this at all. Your brain's a very, it's like a hybrid engine, and it can use ketones, too, and it does it in the face of starvation. And that's really why we were able to, you know, survive famines and things like that. If we didn't make ketones, we would burn up all our skeletal muscle to liberate glucose for our brain. And now, since we have big stores of fat depot, even a lean person has like 30,000 calories worth of fat on them, you know. And that fat, that fat then becomes ketones, and those ketones can be used by the brain. Your brain can't use the fat because the molecules are too big. They don't cross the blood-brain barrier. But your liver chops them up like a, like a wood chipper, right, into little, right. little bits, little small water-soluble uh, breakdown products of fat. And then they are like super fuel for your brain. But you only make them, you know, under extreme conditions, right, under, you know, uh, pretty, pretty much prolonged fasting or a very strict ketogenic diet. And, you know, when we, when we get into this state of ketosis, it kind of heightens our awareness and, and to some extent our physiological and mental capacity, and especially in males. I would say in females it, it happens too, but to a lesser extent we're, we're studying that. But if males did not have, you know, enhanced, you know, lucid thinking, and they, they would not survive. So the people who could not survive <laughs> fasting didn't go on to actually kill the animal and forage and collect the food and the resources necessary to survive. Like if, you know, if you lost all your energy and you had a hypoglycemic event and, and your ketones couldn't, couldn't preserve brain energy metabolism, you, you couldn't survive. You wouldn't be able to get the resources you need. So it's really, uh, you know, in the context from an evolutionary standpoint, it's a hardwired evolutionary metabolic program that's activated in the face of starvation. And I became really uh, interested in this and talked to actually uh, Harvard. Uh, uh, one of the, the key people in all this was actually at Harvard. And I think he would be an awesome person to look up. He passed away, unfortunately, uh, in 2012, uh, Dr. George Cahill. Cahill. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I've, you know, uh, conversed with him, you know, extensively early on. And because uh, there was some stuff that he actually did that like wasn't published and that was really interesting, like wow. keeping a cow completely ketogenic and like all these things. And the stuff that was published really blew my mind. It actually uh, motivated me to contact him it was a, a fasting study where they fasted subjects for 40 days. Uh, and they looked they looked at the AV difference in uh, fuel utilization in the brain. It was a very elegant study at the time. And prior to 1967, uh, it was firmly believed that the brain could only use glucose. So his observations and his series of elegant studies uh, at Harvard Medical School uh, really paved the path and had to rewrite the medical textbooks to, to basically show that the brain can use, you know, fuels other than glucose. And, you know, what's really exciting to me over the last, uh, when I got into this, was not only that the brain can do that, because I didn't even know that <laughs> 10 years ago, uh, but that we can develop and synthesize molecules that are essentially bioidentical uh, molecules to these ketone bodies, and mm -hmm. that they can we can elevate them in the blood, and it won't take seven to ten days. We can elevate them in 30 minutes or less, and then sustain them for hours. 
and Hmm. basically supercharge your brain and your whole physiology, your heart and your brain, which are the major organs to make you function and and, uh, enhance your performance. We can increase those fuels and, um, and actually sustain them throughout the day. Now we're really just at the cusp of understanding sort of this technology, if you want to call it a technology, because they're sort of new molecules. And we don't even really know how to use it yet. <laughs> so we're yeah. and and our lab is basically really, you know, we, since we study things like wound healing, cancer, you know, exercise performance, uh, muscle wasting associated with like aging, sarcopenia, it's called, uh, and and all these you know um, metabolic disorders where there's cognitive and, and physiological impairment. So we have model systems for them. So we have an Angelman syndrome mouse, for example, that Angelman syndromes is very similar to autism, uh, where there's there's actually seizures associated with and and behavioral uh, characteristics, and these are significantly reversed with a ketogenic diet that's strict. So the Angelman syndrome community, you know, after the the data came out on the mouse model showing that it was nutritional ketosis with a ketone supplement was more therapeutic than any drug that they had ever tested. They are now, you know, reallocating their resources to, you know, doing a clinical trial with nutritional ketosis and pulling, pulling like funds from drug companies essentially to, and because the drugs work to a certain degree, but not as much as nutritional ketosis, which uh, is not really surprising because it's been known for years that the ketogenic diet, uh, works for epilepsy when drugs fail. Right. And interestingly, it's independent of the etiology, meaning no matter what the epilepsy, it could be temporal lobe epilepsy, it could be you know epilepsy from brain injury, it could be epilepsy from a neurometabolic disorder, like a glucose impairment disorder. It works across the board when not only one drug fails, but multiple drugs in combination fail. So we know it's working through a mechanism or mechanisms uh, that are independent of all the existing drugs now because you can use cocktails of drugs that don't work, use a ketogenic diet, and it works. And so we, we study actually all these mechanisms, and then we study what types of pathologies and even performance enhancement you know, uh, effects are impacted by nutritional ketosis and we look at things from intermittent fasting to uh, mostly ketogenic diets, and probably 60% of what we do is ketone supplements. And we study them in isolation, and then we also study them in formulating two or three or up to six of them together uh, with and without cofactors that would further augment and enhance uh, ketone energy production in the cells. Wow. Um, and and Dom, so it sounds like there's, there's a lot of different applications for ketosis, but mm-hmm. just for people who don't already know, how would you, like, let, let's say you're in an elevator with 10 random people and you're on the first floor and you're going to the fifth floor, so you've got, like, 10 seconds, and yeah. these are 10 random people. So how would you explain, like, you could say the, the elevator pitch for ketosis? Yeah, um, for ketosis, so it would depend on, you know, why people were asking. Uh, so the big one, I guess, that a lot of people are interested in, just, you know, the overarching one, is that nutritional ketosis is a very powerful tool for weight loss, for one thing, right? It helps 
by altering the brain uh, function, it, help, it can help control your appetite. And by elevating ketone bodies in your blood, it's providing an alternative energy substrate uh, to glucose. So it's almost like, you know, you pull up to the gas station and today I'm riding my motorcycle into work, right? So, and I had to get gas. And if I put in the regular gas into my tank, uh, my motor, and I did it one time, it starts to buck, it starts to, it doesn't run right, right? So I have to put in uh, the high octane fuel into my motorcycle and it runs, you know, with great precision. And, and there's also less carbon coming out the exhaust, right? So when you burn mm-hmm. glucose, you make, you literally make more CO2, but you also make more, more free radicals, right? Because it's less of a clean burning fuel. When you burn ketones for energy, it's, it's really analogous to a high octane fuel. Not only do you, you generate about 25% more ATP per carbon molecule and per uh, unit oxygen, and you also generate, not only you generate more ATP, which is the cell's energy currency, but you also generate less free radicals. And for a car, that would be like less carbon emissions out the back end, right? I mean, I, right. I guess that would be the easiest analogy. I like that. I love that analogy. I, I never heard that before. That's pretty That's pretty cool. It just popped um, into my head because I, yeah. <laughs> I huh. messed up my motorcycle. I had to drain the tank. I put in, uh, I was on autopilot and I put in regular gas in it. And I realized I did a bad thing the last time I sold out. So. Oh, that, that that's a good one. You know, there, there's so yeah. much complexity behind the ketogenic diet. I think it it can be really mm-hmm. powerful to have an analogy like that. So, yeah. um, you know, as I mentioned, Dom, I listened to your podcast on Tim Ferriss, all three of them. I, I heard the the one with Joe Rogan, and um, because of essentially because of you, I, I got onto ketosis, and so I've been using this um, this Excel sheet that my friend made me, where I, where I track my macros every day and. You know, I seem a little yeah. like neurotic, oh, but I've written it with, you know, with, with, with me. If I'm not tracking every single calorie, I'll just eat, you know, crap. Like I have to yeah. really be, uh, really be, really be good about it. Is that is that what you found? Do you, do you have a way of staying, you know, monitoring keto? I, you know, I use the Precision Extra. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I do. I I do tend to measure a lot now because uh, I'm testing different ketone supplements, so I need to get very precise measurements. Uh, actually, one of the things I'm doing now is that a law firm reached out to me and they want to know if breath ketones can give a false positive for breath alcohol. And uh, so now we're doing experiments where we stimulate, you know, high levels of ketones to see uh, if you can get a false positive for like, you know, that has implications for DUI and things like that. So I tend to do kind of a lot of uh measurements in the lab. But when I first started a ketogenic diet, like almost 10 years ago, I carefully measured out per gram every macronutrient on a scale. And then I wrote it on paper and then I put it in a spreadsheet and then I I tracked my glucose and ketone numbers. And I started out with the Johns Hopkins protocol from the book that Eric Kossoff, uh, he runs the ketogenic diet uh, clinic at, at Johns Hopkins, one of the bigger clinics in the U.S. And I used, you know, his his book and his guidelines. And the classical ketogenic diet is about 87% fat. Like, it's really high. It's called the classical four to one. And I had to do that. Otherwise, basically, it was me picking the foods I like and then adding uh, a crap load of fat to that. <laughs> so I would, uh, instead of eggs, you know, whole eggs, I would just eat egg yolks. And I would cook the, I would make an egg yolk omelet 
in butter or coconut mm-hmm. oil, and then I would have you know a tiny a tiny amount of greens on the side, and then I would pour olive oil on it, and uh, and maybe a little bit of like pate or fatty meat on the side. So that was my original ketogenic diet, and now it's more liberal in protein. Instead of like 10 to 15% protein, it's more like 25% uh, protein, and I'm more liberal with the vegetables too. So, uh, so instead of like less than 10 grams of or 20 less than 20 grams of carbs a day, I'm up to 50 on some days 100 grams of carbs a day. But they're very uh, they're pretty much fibrous carbohydrates, non-starch carbohydrates, and I learned to know what foods don't have a glycemic response. So uh, I can kind of game the system, I guess you could say, and actually add more carbohydrates if I know mm. they are. And, and these carbohydrates, uh, many of them, they simply function. They don't, they're non-glycemic, but they function to uh, enhance and, and kind of bulk up the gut microbiome. And feeding the gut microbiome is a good thing. Optimizing the gut microbiome is pretty good, uh, a very good strategy for overall you know, immune system function, you know, your body makes neurotransmitters uh, through the gut microbiome and uh, just for overall health too. So you yeah. want to design a diet that can, that can hit all these, all these beneficial things. And what's the, what's the core function of the gut microbiome? So most of your immune system is actually in your gut. <laughs> most of the DNA in your body if you were just with like, you know, about 10, you have 10 times more DNA in the, from the microbes in your in your gut than you do like in your whole body because there's so many microorganisms, or, you know, literally billions or trillions of little bugs living in your gut. And the gut microbiome does many, many things. It impacts uh, many of the, the microbes actually synthesize uh, molecules that your body uses, including neurotransmitters, things like uh, serotonin. Uh, and it also helps to ensure that your gut uh, maintains its health. So if your gut becomes permeable, that's called leaky gut syndrome, it's usually mm-hmm. a consequence of a disruption in your gut microbiome. And if your gut becomes leaky, so the cells in your gut uh, are connected to one another uh, by these things called tight junctions. And inflammation in your gut can basically uh, loosen the little connections that hold the cells together, these tight junctions. And when your gut becomes leaky, it lets molecules that should otherwise not be uh, in your bloodstream into your bloodstream, like uh, peptides from protein you're digesting. You know, you should really only be absorbing amino acids or very small peptides. So it's letting bigger molecules into your bloodstream that shouldn't be allowed into your bloodstream if your gut microbiome is not optimized or is disrupted in some way. And various things in our diet can do that. Stress can do that. Uh, And then our body launches an immune attack against these foreign objects that it sees in the blood and it launches these autoantibodies. And these, there's never, you know, you hear a lot of talk about autoantibodies. An autoantibody mm. does not serve any positive function in your body. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it's basically, it's launching autoantibodies that are trying to neutralize, 
you know, these things that are entering your bloodstream, but it's attacking your own body. It could attack your pancreas and give you type 1 diabetes. It can attack your brain and cause neuroinflammation that gives you brain fog. So that's why guys like uh, David Perlmutter, who wrote, you know, uh, Grain Brain and other things, they are focusing on the gut microbiome. It's a big component. I mean, his book kind of sells it as the only component, but I think it's you know, if I could quantify it, it's like two-thirds. Uh, it's, it's a really important consideration, uh, maintaining optimal gut microbiome, because we know when it's not optimal, the your gut health uh, is impacted, and you have essentially inflammation in your gut that makes your gut leaky, and it allows things to enter, which disrupts your your immune system, your cognitive function, you know, your joints get achy, and it just makes you feel tired, too, when your gut microbiome is disrupted. So, yeah, so a lot of what we're doing, I didn't really consider that when I started studying this, but the more we get into it, we realize that it's, it's really important to design a ketogenic diet that has prebiotic fiber that keeps that gut bacteria healthy and keeps a a good diversity in your gut microbiome by using a variety of different types of of plants and and vegetables in the ketogenic diet. Yeah, wow. Yeah, you know, it's interesting how how impactful it is, and yet so few people have, even people who consider themselves, you know, nutrition fanatics have have so rarely talked about gut biome, and yet it's really really significant. Um, So I wanted to touch on a couple other you know, potential benefits or uses for the ketogenic diet, including uh, performance, so specifically for strength. You know, I, I yeah. know your, your story about the fasting and deadlift, if you, if you, could, if you could share that, and maybe how, how, how it affected you mentally, you know, not eating for a period uh-huh. of days and, and then lifting. Sure. Um, so that, I guess, uh, end of one project or experiment was – motivated in part by my discussions with uh, Dr. Cahill. And he was alive at the time because this was a few years ago when I did this. And uh, I decided that, you know, if if 40 days was deemed, you know, very safe, even in in the context of a a medical college, you know, one week is not going to kill me. You know, Uh, if I was at some kind of compromised health situation, maybe with cancer, cachexia or something like that, you know, that could that could harm me. But uh, yeah, so I got most people, they, most people think if they miss a day of eating, they're going to die. So. Yeah, so I was I would be in that in that camp, I guess, going back, you know, farther when it comes to athletic performance, strength in the gym, and things like that. Uh, one of my students, you know, is a type one diabetic. One's eating five six meals a day. I mean, he's a powerlifter. He's a big dude. He's like six four two sixty. And uh, the whole concept, when he joined the lab, he's a presidential fellow, actually, a PhD student, and, and he just, you know, soaked up the literature, and now he basically does the same kind of, you know, nutrition I do, and even is fast during the day, and uh, he's only been getting stronger. Uh, right. So I gradually started eating, you know, ketogenic, and then was experimenting on and off with intermittent fasting or short-term fasting for 24. And, and just to, just to put a pause there for anyone like who doesn't know, if you, could we ex- talk about that for a second just to de- define intermittent fasting? Yeah, uh, intermittent fasting would be defined as uh, time restricted eating, I guess, uh, and that could that could be 
uh, implemented in different ways. The most common way uh, would be, uh, I guess the most common that, that most people hear of is the 16-8, where you're fasting for 16 hours uh, during the day and you're eating in an eight-hour window. And that could translate basically to having your first meal at 2 p.m. in the afternoon and not eating anything after 10 p.m. at night. So pretty easy, right? Mm -hmm. uh, sounds like it's easy. You know, just don't eat breakfast and you delay your lunch till 2 p.m. Uh, but it's, it's amazing how such a simple intervention can impact pretty much every health biomarker. Like insulin sensitivity goes up, your triglycerides go down. Uh, and you're eating normal during that time. And it's observed that most people will self-restrict a little bit, like maybe 5 to 10, maybe 15% for some people. And they generally kind of lose some body fat and they lose a little bit of weight initially. But if they're lifting and things like that, they don't, they don't lose muscle. Mm. Uh, so this is – there's some people do alternate day eating. They'll eat one day and not eat the next day and then eat one day. <laughs> That's one way to do it. Uh, the easiest kind of way to do it that has been publicized and even published on is called the 5-2. So that would be basically eating your normal foods, you know, five days out of the week and just two days out of the week. It can be random days or it could be the weekend, whatever you want to do. You only eat uh, – you do – they call it fasting, but it's really semi-fasting. You only eat 500 calories on those two days. And it's observed that people, if they follow this 5-2, you know, paradigm, which is kind of an intermittent fasting paradigm, they call it. Uh, it's just a modified version of it. They, it improves their, their health, their overall health biomarkers, and they lose weight. So most people are doing this stuff to lose weight. And I do it personally just because it fits into my busy schedule, and I feel better. And if I feel better, I get more work done. Uh, mm -hmm. It makes me more productive because I don't have to prepare food, eat food, clean up. You know, if I can just come in and hammer out, you know, a 12-hour day, I can get like well, it seems like twice the amount of work done if I don't have to worry about <laughs> eating. Right. And then and I enjoy my my food a lot when, when we go home. Like dinner is kind of an event. You know, we yeah. eat slow huh. and just kind of. So uh, nice. so yeah, I think maybe if you're going to talk about. Uh, intermittent fasting, you might want to look up, you know, 16-8 intermittent fasting, or maybe just do like a Wikipedia search. And maybe some of the researchers who actually study this as part of their cornerstone of their research, like Walter Longo, you know, he's been on, I think he's been on, uh, on Rogan. I know he's been on Rhonda Patrick many times. So Walter with a V, yeah. uh, Walter Longo has uh, published pretty extensively on that. So, yeah, so I was doing these things, you know, and I, I started following the ketogenic diet. Uh, I started following the medical ketogenic diet, the diet that's used for epilepsy and uh, eating a lot of butter and a lot of. And at the time, Eric Kossoff, who runs the clinic at Johns Hopkins, had not published yet on the modified ketogenic diet, which is like like a real easy version to follow. And they find that they get like 90 percent of the benefits with a modified ketogenic diet, which is like. 65% uh, fat and like 25%, you know, uh, protein and the balance being, you know, fibrous carbohydrates, vegetables, basically, especially a lot of green vegetables 
although I eat cauliflower mashed potatoes or cauliflower uh, mash, I guess you'd call it a lot. So it's kind of like mashed potatoes, but you would never know the difference. You just overcook cauliflower and zip it up in a food processor and it comes out to like a white mashed potato-like consistency and just add butter and salt and pepper. Wow. It's pretty, pretty good. So that's like an example of a staple food that's a replacement when people say, well, I need carbs, I need potatoes, I need mashed potatoes. Well, there's right. something called cauliflower mashed potatoes. I actually had it out at a restaurant, at a steakhouse. And I was like, wow, you know, I need to start making this. So, Do you, do you ever add, like, cheese to that? Sounds like it would be pretty uh, good. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Like a, like a, a teaspoon of Parmesan cheese can really zip it up and make it good. Or yeah. even, like, uh, uh, cheddar cheese or something like that. Yep. Huh, so. Yeah, so I started experimenting, you know, with all these foods and really transitioned my body into a state of nutritional ketosis for about a half a year to the point where I'd say I was keto adapted, where I was continuously in a state of ketosis. And I guess it was around 2011-ish, where 2012, 11, yeah, actually I was following it strict ketogenics for about a half a year, where I decided to kind of go all in and, you know, and do this one week, seven day fast. And, uh, at the time I had a tremendous amount of work on my plate. I was working on several manuscripts. I just transitioned to a tenure track, uh, position, which the clock starts ticking. I don't know if you know how that works, but you have to, in five years, you have to hit a certain metric of publications. You have to bring in like literally, you know, at least a million to $3 million in grant funding. You got to do a bunch of teaching and serve on committees. So it was like um, a lot, I had a lot of pressure on, on and I needed to use my time pretty, pretty effectively. And what really blew, I was concerned that fasting would decrease my productivity, a little bit concerned, you know, well, I guess I would say I was more interested to see how it would impact it. Yeah. And when I started fasting, the week of my fasting, I think I got more done than any other period in my entire career. Wow. Uh, I got a major grant written and submitted that ended up being, you know, uh, a cornerstone of our funding and paying lots of salaries and things like that. Uh, I got two or three manuscripts written you know, managed to, you know, get in the lab and meet with my students every day and uh, served on committees, uh, did a lot of teaching. And the last day uh, of my fast, actually right before uh, I was eating, I, I gave a, a seminar and the seminar was kind of on this topic. It was on, you know, the effects of nutritional ketosis and it was to like a fitness community, people in exercise science. And, uh, and I, at the end of my talk, I, I told them that, you know, I was, I was fasting for a week <laughs> and, uh, and, and shortly after that, I went to the gym and did some blood measurements and then went to the gym and, uh, without eating, yeah, I did kind of what would be a normal workout for me where I did started with deadlifts. I kind of warmed up a little bit, uh, with like chin-ups and push-ups and stuff, just get my body. And I, you know, did my normal deadlift routine, uh, and backed off a little bit. I didn't want to go kind of too crazy, but was able to uh, to do conservatively even like uh, 500 for a set of 10, relatively. Easy. And, that, and that's and that's after not eating for, for how a long? week. So uh, week seven eat. days. So when you say like you literally had no, no calories. calories, yeah, no calories. You had Just no calories. Fluid. 
Yeah, and half the caffeine. So I found that it was important, yeah, to cut back because your body becomes so sensitive to the food that you give it that the normal amount of caffeine would just basically give me jitters. And, uh, you know, so basically uh, I would have, instead of two cups of coffee throughout the morning, I would have one cup and then like a little bit of green tea in the afternoon with like a pinch of Splenda or something, or a pinch of uh, stevia. And would sip on that. So probably, you know, knock, knocked me down from like two or 300 milligrams of caffeine a day to like maybe a hundred. And, mm-hmm. and I had more energy. So, uh, in the beginning, the second and third day was a little bit hard. I would say I just missed, I missed sitting down, you know, with my, my wife or girlfriend at the time. And, uh, and I missed having dinner. I missed the socialness of dinner. So typically what I would do is make, uh, you know, some kind of like, uh, if I've had my caffeine already, make some ginger tea or something like that with nothing in it and just kind of mm. sip on that during when she was eating a meal and talk about. It. But that's what I missed the most. It wasn't that my body was hungry. Uh, I can huh. kind of get through that fine, but it was the social, it was like chewing food. It was like just the pleasure of eating. Yeah. I really missed more than anything else. And by the fifth day, I started to feel like, uh, you know, my body was just kind of like turning down. Everything was like almost slow motion. Towards the end of the day, my speech would start to like slow down a little bit. You know, if you haven't had coffee, like you're slurring your speech a little bit. It was kind of like that. And that could have been from less coffee. I don't know. I just didn't want to stress my body with like caffeine. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I just felt, um, you know, I didn't have that explosiveness. So I was really curious about at what what would happen in the gym so you know typically my all-time best like deadlift with 500 was something like 18 or 20 reps or something like that and that was but well, I was like 30 pounds heavier at least so to do an easy 10 reps and I didn't want to push it because I was in a fasted state was really remarkable to me that that low end kind of grunt it didn't even like take the fire out of that explosive lifting so, you know, I didn't run a marathon or anything. So my energy reserves were definitely running a little bit lower, but it was not to the point where someone who knew me and watched me give a lecture or even watched me in the gym uh, would recognize it. Someone said I'd look a little bit gaunt because my cheeks, my uh, probably because of the fat around my face, like I was probably running a little bit dehydrated. My cheeks were a little bit sucked in, uh, but and that's just probably from the fat loss. I lost about nine pounds, which wow. came, pretty much came back within about 10 to 12 days after. Hmm. You know, it's so amazing because there's so many guys who, who who will not go to the gym until they've had their sugary pre-workout, you know, hundreds of calories. And the second they leave the gym, they'll, they'll fill themselves with protein and all this stuff. And they think that's such a core component of it. And yet... You know, here's this guy, Dom, who doesn't eat for seven days and saunders into the gym and is, is lifting more than anyone there. I mean, can, how do we explain that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, there's different ways that you can approach training. And if your body is used to that, if your body is used to kind of loading up on, on calories before hitting the gym and you don't do that initially, you know, you might you might suffer some performance decrements. If that's what your body's used to. Uh, like I said, I think it was important that my body was kind of adapted 
to being in a state of nutritional ketosis. And since my brain was used to using ketones for fuel, it was relatively easy for me to transition into um, uh, fasting ketosis and to maintain, you know, performance and productivity and whatnot. Um, But I think, you know, especially the older individual – when you're young, I'm kind of reflecting back when I was like playing football and, you know, when I was younger in like high school and things like that, I was, you know, eating massive amounts of pasta and sugary drinks, tons of Gatorade, and your metabolism's a little bit different than now. I think my metabolism a little more mature and definitely adapted to a different fuel source. So what's, I think the most important point to me is that you can shift your metabolism from burning carbohydrates and glucose to burning fats and ketones. And and you can even measure that objectively. It's called the respiratory quotient. And it's uh, the CO2 excreted over the O2 consumed. And carbohydrates have a 1.0 respiratory quotient and fats have a 0.7. And you breathe into a device and then you breathe out and it measures it with you know analytical equipment. And you can, in studies where elite athletes are adapted to a ketogenic diet, they are literally 0.7. And, and some of these athletes are the ones, you know, finishing first in races and whatnot. Wow. And that, to me, that, that's like incredible. It's like you have a machine, you know, the analogy, you have a car and it's running completely off electric relative to maybe a dirty gas or diesel engine. <laughs> and uh, cause, and you, can, you can point to the respiratory quotient and say, see – you know, look at that number. That's purely uh, an objective, you know, indication that that fuel system is burning fat and ketones as an energy source. So that's pretty cool to me. I like numbers. Like, yeah, you know, I, I like, and I was kind of obsessed with certain hitting certain numbers uh, when I was uh, when I started doing this. You know, was, I was kind of obsessed with uh, tracking macros for one thing, and then tracking my glucose and ketones. And what's not the so best much thing? now. No. Well, I, I like to do it now, but just to test, like, I'm not as obsessive about it. I'm, I'm very interested, but I don't do it, like, every single day. I do it right. usually just when I'm testing things. And, and Dom, just, just, just really quick, um, just time check. I, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm loving this conversation. I have a lot more questions to ask. Are we doing okay on time? Uh, yeah, I'm good. I'm good for, what time? It's 5 of 2. I'm good for another, you know, 20 minutes. Okay. And awesome. then and then could follow up tomorrow too. I just have to go to a meeting. Sure. Later. Yeah, that, that's perfect. I really okay. I really appreciate it. Um, well, so so how do you keep track of your ketogenic diet without tracking it? Is it just you've been doing it for so long now that you have a good um, idea of of you know what it takes and what you can eat? Yeah, pretty much. If you know, if I know, you know, the general macronutrient kind of ratios and foods that's going into my body. I just yeah. know from years of testing with the Abbott Precision Extra Meter, I use the Freestyle uh, Neo actually too, and uh, and even you know urine ketones too is one way to do it, a cheaper way. Uh, I just know from years of doing that what foods do to me in regards to ketone production and even glucose levels. So, gotcha. and I'm I'm kind of a creature of habits. I I tend to you know buy the same 15, 20 foods you know, at the store and mix them in different combinations and, and different amounts. So, uh, and nowadays, like the last two days, 
I had to give Thursday, I had to give like a big lecture at a cancer center, which was like a, for me, a very high profile talk. And I, I don't eat. So I, I, on those days I do intermittent fasting. I don't intermittent fast every day. And then the day after that I had to, we had a film crew here and they're like doing a documentary series and stuff. And I had to talk for literally like six hours. So, uh, and I did that again. And, uh, I, I, just did you know intermittent fasting. My first meal I think was three or four in the afternoon, uh, and I just felt so much better. I was just telling my wife that you know because I went I went about a week without intermittent fasting, and then you know did two days. And I think it's almost good. Those your body senses relative changes. So if you were to intermittent fast every day, maybe you wouldn't get the same benefits that you would if you were eating and then did a day of intermittent fasting. Like I think those relative changes, especially if your body is in a well-fed state, for example, you know, you eat sufficiently to your satiation on Monday and on Tuesday you do intermittent fasting, skip breakfast and, and your body is in a fed state, like it has all the nutrition that it needs. If you were to go into an intermittent fasting with a calorie deficit, then you may not get, you know, you may not be as sharp or energetic the, right. the day that you're doing, you know, your body, it takes a while for your body to slow down from an energy deficit. So if you're, your body's kind of in a fed state and your nutritional status is really good, uh, that's what I kind of like to do. If I have a big event coming up and when I did actually the NASA NEMO mission, the undersea mission with the astronauts mm-hmm. and I lived underwater, I, I kind of ate really good for a week before going into it. And, uh, cause I knew just by virtue of everything that, you know, we had to do, uh, on the mission that I would be able to get as much nutrition as I, as I need and and right. it felt good you know so so there's different these are things that I learned that uh, ultimately I want to write a book and you know put kind of all these experiences and and things into uh, a book where people can kind of refer to it and have a practical approach to different things because a lot of this stuff is not yet in the literature yeah no I a lot of this I mean you know you're talking about George Cahill study from the 60s, but um, yeah. as, as being part of the birth of, of this ketosis revolution, but it sounds like a lot of, really the momentum is just picking up now. Um, so so let, me, let me ask this, what, uh, what, what are you most excited about for in 2018? I mean, can you, can you talk about a study that's either planned or is in the works? I mean, what, what, are you, what, are you, what, what most excites you right now? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, man, there's so many things that excite me, so I have to, you know, narrow it down a little bit hard. But I would say the transition of our preclinical animal model work into human clinical trials. Uh, the first one being it just got approved, or the IRB got approved for Angelman syndrome, which is, you know, kind of this rare genetic disorder where you have a persistent molecular pathology so you have a defect in what's called the house cleaning gene (laughs) and it Mm -hmm. creates seizures and motor function impairments and the diet works remarkably well so uh the trial that we're going initiating it's going to be a multi-institute trial is to use a ketone supplement in the form of a ketone salt uh, product and also a ketone ester for that so that that is something that happened very rapidly one of my students you know just did a project on the animal model for angelman syndrome and then we connected with a lead investigator so that and another kind of along the same lines is the transition of our studies into human clinical trials for uh, uh, brain tumor patients 
and that was part of a lot of what my I was speaking on uh, this week. So one of the we happened to be a short walk from uh, the best cancer center in Florida, one of the top five or ten cancer centers in the United States, the Moffitt Cancer Center, and they are developing a uh, a metabolic clinic, uh, metabolic uh, treatment center uh, for cancer patients where. They want to be, they really want to be the leader in using nutritional ketosis through dietary means and through supplement means as the cornerstone of their treatment program, their metabolic treatment program for patients. So I, this is like mind blowing to me. Actually, you know, on the drive home yesterday, it was kind of, it just hit me that that, how amazing that is. Because when I got into this, there was one, maybe two clinical trials on the ketogenic diet on clinicaltrials.gov like registered, like government registered clinical trials. And now there's 26. And now one of the institute who, you know, they were kind of pretty resistant to this idea. Now they're actually asking me, you know, to be part of this center. And, uh, and that's, that's really exciting to me. And it just happened this week. So it's just kind of like fresh information kind of in my head. So that, that comes to mind you know, as I think of the exciting things. And also the biggest challenge and even the, the for the ketogenic diet where it's accepted and, and kind of embraced using it for epilepsy, the biggest challenge is uh, compliance and implementation. It's just really hard for people to implement this. So I'm very excited about the food companies that are coming online that are creating uh, prepackaged ketogenic meals, you know, a gourmet chef prepares these meals and packages them and can send them to your house, you know, kind of like Amazon. You get on, you can click a la carte what you want, like beef stroganoff and, you know, chicken stir fry or uh, even a ketogenic brownie. And you pick your meals Monday through Friday, it gets sent to your doorstep, you know, on ice, and you got your all your meals for the week. And it's relatively, you know, good price. So nice. that's exciting to me. And and also the the – Ketone supplements can circumvent the dietary restriction that's typically associated or necessary to get into a state of therapeutic ketosis. So the use of ketone supplementation is probably the third thing. If I had to pick three things, it would be the like you know third thing that I'm really excited about, and I think it's going to be a game changer because mm-hmm. people can follow you know a low carb diet uh, or carbohydrate semi carbohydrate restricted diet, and then you know, incorporate ketone supplements and then get their ketones into the therapeutic range, into the range that we know through animal studies and human clinical trials is, has anti-seizure effects, has, you know, uh, neuroprotective effects. We can achieve those levels with supplementation on a diet that's less restrictive. And that, that opens up ketogenic diet therapies for much more people to be able to implement this uh, successfully. Right. That's awesome. Um, a lot, it sounds like a lot is on the runway. What, what's the study that you really want to see funded but hasn't got funded? Something that you're really pulling at saying, hey, look, this needs attention and it hasn't got momentum yet. Like if you had, you know, if someone could grant you $4 million to, to do a study, what, what, would it, what would it go towards? Yeah, good question. Uh, I think it would have to be, you know, uh, using the ketogenic diet, or I'll put it under the blanket of nutritional ketosis, because the cancer centers are really interested in this 
you know, easy version of the diet, just a lower carb diet with a ketone supplement, and getting that funded at a major institute uh, for uh, as an adjuvant therapy for um, brain tumor patients, in particular glioblastoma patients and also patients with low-grade glioma. A glioblastoma patient, very aggressive brain tumor, you got about 12 months to live, and, uh, and the standard of care doesn't do anything. It decreases the quality of your life and may buy you two, maybe three months if you're lucky. So for low-grade glioma, it's just a slower-growing tumor. Um, in many cases, that you have the same same standard of care, but you have three to five years of life. So we know that these tumors are super are sugar burners. They're highly glycolytic, and they're very responsive to therapeutic ketosis. So we know that already. It targets all the hallmarks of cancer. So there's many. When someone writes a manuscript, you know, in the in the introduction, they always reference this paper called The Hallmarks of Cancer, where, you know, cancer, uh, it can evade growth factors, it has unlimited proliferation, there's a high level of inflammation. So, and I gave it, my talk at the Cancer Center was to precisely show how nutritional ketosis targets every single one of the hallmarks of cancer. So, it, it was actually an easy sell you know, to the to the cancer community. And and now the the National Institutes of Health and the National Cancer Institute are interested enough to uh to at least consider accepting proposals <laughs> for a study. But it it's taken a long time. So and the more funding that we can get for this type of study, the more we can expand it into other institutes and increase the sample size, increase the patient numbers to show validity for this approach. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, awesome. So it sounds like there's a lot of potential, for can and that's something we didn't even yep. get a chance to talk too much about, but for for cancer treatment as well. Um, uh, shifting gears a little bit, so so you know, but back to athletes, right? So a lot of endurance athletes, marathoners, there's this phenomenon of carboloading, right? So people eating like thousands of calories of pasta the night before a race, and Obviously, that contradicts what someone would do on the keto diet. But my question is, is there a keto equivalence for carbo-loading? In other words, as a keto-adapted athlete, would it be beneficial to, like, eat a ton of fat the night before? Or what do you recommend, you know, pre-event and, and during event for an endurance athlete who's on the ketogenic diet? Yeah, I wouldn't do anything radical. You know, I wouldn't do anything uh, too far away from the norm. So what I would do, if someone has a race on a Saturday, I would uh, increase the amount of calories consumed uh, gradually during the week. So on uh, Tuesday, you would have, if your baseline level of calories were uh, 2,500, or yeah, you would boost that up to like 3,000, and then do, do roughly a 25% increase in your calories on uh, Tuesday and Wednesday, and then on Thursday and Friday, maybe even bump up your calories up to 40 or 50%. Uh, so not eating specifically any kind of macronutrient ratio, but just ensuring that you are getting a surplus amount of calories over about uh, a two- to four-day window, depending on the individual and the duration of the race. Like if you're doing an ultra marathon, 
you might want to, you know, kind of start eating up four days out. And if you're doing like a, you know, a 5K or a half marathon, you want to start two days out and mm -hmm. not carb loading or fat loading, but just eating more of the same foods that you've been eating. And those surplus calories will find their way. Uh, even on a ketogenic diet, you can maximize and, and increase your glycogen uh, levels in your muscle. So you'll, you'll convert uh, some glucose from the glycerol backbone of fat is actually converts slowly to glucose, and that glucose can replenish glycogen source. So your body does a great job by taking surplus amount of calories independent of the macronutrient and then storing it in a way that you can use later in, in, the, in the days following. Gotcha. And you're saying take any kind of calories. I mean, if one's on the ketogenic diet doing, let's say, or modified Atkins doing 70% fat, would it be important to maintain those ratios or just load up on calories? Yeah, I, I think it's good to just maintain the same ratios that you've been eating and not loading up gotcha. on any individual. Yeah, and you're, like I said, your body, you know, and not do, do not, you know, start eating some kind of crazy food the day before. Right. Uh, you know, some people, you know, will load up on pasta and they haven't been eating pasta. Pasta is more dense than like a potato, for example. They'll load up on pasta because they may have a mild allergy to wheat or gluten or something. They'll have GI issues for that day and even the, the days following, and that can mess them up. So uh, you want to stick with your same foods. Don't try doing anything that you haven't tested during your normal training. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. uh, For example, if you're going to use a ketone supplement, you would not like you know test the ketone supplement on the day of your race. Right. <laughs> you want to train with that. Actually, that was a, a study that is really a stupid study, and I actually provided the ketone ester for the study over in uh, Australia. So they contacted me, and they had some elite, you know, endurance athletes coming in, um, and they're, you know, running a study. And I supplied them. I told them how to do it, but they didn't. I told them that they thoroughly had to mm. test uh, the tolerability of ketone supplements before using them, you know, in the study. And so, Jeez. if you it's, have some kind of Asian, sense, right? It's like you know, yeah, out before you jump down, you know, jump into it. Yeah, like a third of them were throwing up. So how you're not gonna, you know, it's not gonna enhance your performance if you're throwing up if you don't nail down, you know, the, the dose. So imagine you create in a lab and synthesize some new compound that appears to have like, you know, an ergogenic effect, a performance enhancing yeah. effect. Like you wouldn't kind of randomly just take the compound and not, you know, figure out what dose is optimal and expect to have a performance enhancement of that. You know, even caffeine, you take people, you know, that have never been exposed to caffeine before and just load them. And you have some white powder in a bag and say, take this stuff. It has, you know, a mild performance. In it. You would know what the, if you dose them too high, it's going to really make them, it's going to screw them up. So uh, Yeah. Yeah, someone so has a, a bag with white powder saying, take this stuff, it'll enhance your performance. I, I don't know. <laughs> um, well, that's what people do. A lot of people do. Uh, with the ketogenic, they may take medium-chain triglycerides, MCT oil, and they're like, MCTs make ketones, so I'm going to take a bunch of MCT oil on the day of my race, and they're going to end up with major GI issues. Actually, Tim Ferriss kind of did this. Uh, I sent him a bunch of stuff throughout the mail, and uh, and he mentioned this sometimes, but he doesn't identify me. Uh, I told him not to identify me, but he, he took uh, a, a sort of a potent version of MCT oil that we had, 
and he was he had to go travel. He was running off to a flight, and he took it in the morning. And I said, you got to work your way up to it. And he was like, uh, he called me or texted me or something. He's in the airport, and he was like, he has disaster pants or whatever. He just described it. He's like, ah. he was laughing about it, but at the same time, <laughs> you know, it had very real implicate and and you know endurance athletes um marathon runners do this they'll they have loaded up on mcts and they contact me and they're like oh my god i had you know massive diarrhea explosive diarrhea you know 30 minutes into my race like no you got to test these things and vet them out very thoroughly before you do it wow that that's pretty funny um so you yeah it sounds like you really got to know it you know try it before the day of the race yeah, it should seem obvious. But but on that note, and, and I'll get off this quickly. But on that note, so before a race, load up on calories. Don't do anything crazy during a race. During and and so the reason I'm asking this actually, I'm doing a full Ironman in April, and I'm gonna do it yeah. fully keto. And I'm gonna do it fully keto. So I might even measure my ketones during it. Um, what, what would you recommend eating during it? During the race. Um, You'll find that you need considerably less, uh, you know, during the actual race. Uh, but I would, I would formulate uh, a mixture of MCT oil powder with uh, a ketone salt product. You know, one of them on the market. My ketonutrition.org website has some of the products that we've tested on the market on the homepage. And mm-hmm. it's a branch chain amino acids. And a small amount of carbohydrates would probably be fine. I mean, something as simple as, you know, if you have, uh, you know, 100 calories of fat, you want to maybe get like 30 or 40, uh, or it's, let me do grams. If you have like 30 grams of, of fat, you might want to get like 15 to 20 grams of carbs and, and sodium too, during the race, intra-workout. And and that's a small amount, uh, and, and consume that very um, very sparingly. So instead of yeah. just chugging it down, like you need very small amounts. Instead of consuming like 1,000 calories throughout your whole race or 2,000, which a lot of athletes do, uh, I would limit it to like anywhere from 200 to like less than 500 calories throughout oh, wow. the race. So huh. fluids and sodium. Though. So probably the most important thing, yeah, ensure that you get lots of water, lots of fluids, and, and ensure that you get sodium. It will help you keep that fluid in your body. Gotcha. I think ketosis, okay. you do run a little bit dry. You do run slightly dehydrated because your insulin is suppressed, and with low insulin, you're always dumping out a little bit more sodium. So you want right. to kind of load up a little bit um, pre-workout and intra-workout. Gotcha. Noted. I will um... – this is this is great. I really appreciate it. I'll, I'll let you go in a couple minutes. Couple really quick questions. So, so for this race I'm doing, any any charities you recommend? I want to link up with one. Um, ideally, something aligns with uh, you know nu- nu- nutrition or uh, helping you know helping solve helping remedy problems with with ketosis. Any anything any worthwhile one you know? Yeah, um, the big one that I've kind of even spoke on behalf of is uh, the Charlie Foundation. Okay. So uh, I included a mention of it in my TED Talk, and I reached out to Jim Abrams, the Hollywood producer, and his son Charlie. That's that's how the foundation got its name. Uh, yeah. This is Jim Abrams that created the movie uh, Airplane 
Naked Gun. Right. Oh, yeah. Uh, That's a great movie. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So, yeah, I, I, I do, you know, speak on his behalf and I have like uh, different educational things on the uh, website. So if you could, yeah, bring attention to the Charlie Foundation, that would be great because they are a resource and they help. They're a charity that has helped more people than I, than I can. I don't know of any other charity that has helped as many people as the Charlie Foundation for, you know, nutritional or ketogenic interventions. And, you know, when I connected with them, it was pediatric epilepsy like 10 years ago, but now they help people mostly with epilepsy, but with a wide range of other disorders too. So that would be kind of right up your alley, right? Yeah. Yeah. And their main dietitian is Beth Jupet-Kenia. And I think she runs marathons and she always stays ketogenic. So she's on the the website. You'll see her with Meryl Streep. Actually, Meryl Streep did a movie about the ketogenic diet called First Human. So we're talking about uh, benefits of ketogenic diets for preventing neurodegenerative diseases. What about just for brain health in general for younger people uh, who, who, who do not have uh, these diseases but are looking to just increase uh, brain function or have optimal brain functioning? Yeah, I, I think that's, a, that's an interesting question that I get asked a lot. And there's definitely less data on healthy subjects and, uh, and nutritional ketosis just because, you know, it's hard to get funding to study healthy subjects uh, as opposed to disease subjects. But the, the military does that, but they tend to do it where they take the subjects and they produce some kind of deficit. So the deficit could be uh, – exposing them to, you know, extreme uh, physiological environment. So put them on top of Mount Everest and have them do cognitive function. Put them, you know, simulating uh, a deep undersea dive and looking at performance and cognitive function. Uh, NASA likes to uh, do some uh, studies where they deprive them of sleep, they do sleep deprivation, and then they task load them and see what their performance is like. Uh, You could probably, you know, that could be analogous to what a lot of CEOs try to do. You know, even I try to do it in in academia. I'll I'll go a night or two without sleep to try to meet a deadline on a grant. You know, it's, it's kind of like an extreme situation. And, and I think where ketones shine is that they can help preserve and maintain normal brain function when your body is at a significant deficit, when it's compromised in some way. And and that would that would uh kind of you know align with the the ability of the ketogenic diet to prevent seizures when your brain has an impairment in some way, whether it be like a brain tumor causing excess stress you know, on the brain, uh, whether, you know, we know that ketosis prevents a seizure from high-pressure oxygen, which causes, you know, stress in the brain. Um, so so I think it, it has the ability to enhance normal cognitive function in healthy, even elite-level kind of warfighters or athletes, but in the context of really pushing the limits of, of human performance you know, where the individual is really pushing their body or even pushing their mental capacity to continue to function 
when most people would typically break down and and either be too tired to keep functioning or uh, or just simply can't you know wouldn't be able to function in a particular environment. Wow. So and branching off that, how has the the medical industry reacted to some of these findings? Like, do you ever see ketosis replacing drugs? How have, you know, how have different hospitals like, accepted or embraced uh, some of these new insights? So the major, a lot of the major pharmaceutical companies have expressed an interest in understanding how ketones work uh, to reverse engineer ketones, I guess you would say, to make a drug that can can work in the same way. Uh, for example, the the company you've probably heard of Genentech, and they yeah. got bought out by Roach. Uh, I was invited to their facility to give a talk on the druggable mechanisms of the ketogenic diet, and then you know, they're, all their scientists were in a big auditorium taking notes to figure out how they can, what mechanisms they can target to basically make a drug that is as neuroprotective as the ketogenic diet. And it's difficult to do because the metabolism is incredibly complex. And when you change your physiological metabolism globally, there are many different mechanisms working in synchrony to produce the neuroprotective anti-seizure effect. So, you know, simply targeting the inflammatory pathway or reducing free radical production is not, these are things that the ketogenic diet does, but it does that and many other things. Uh, so, the, you know, I've gotten invitations from UCB Pharmaceuticals. They make the most popular anti-convulsant drug. It's called Keppra. So their main headquarters is in uh, in Belgium. So you know, I f- I flew to Belgium, and there was a there was you know all the top scientists that study this, and it was uh, it was actually spearheaded by David Axelrod's wife uh, because you know, David Axelrod. Do you know David Axelrod? He was, um, uh, you know Obama's. Uh, yeah, well, he was. Uh, a, pretty prominent uh figure in politics and uh his daughter has uh intractable epilepsy and uh his wife I'm trying to think of his wife's name Susan Axelrod that's right so I got the the invitation from Susan Axelrod and uh so Susan Axelrod is the wife of David Axelrod and David is uh the chief strategist for Obama for the presidential oh. campaign. So, so, so his uh, his wife, uh, she's the I guess you would call her the president or the CEO of the Epilepsy Society, and they have been seeking, you know, for their daughter's sake and for you know for all of ep- epilepsy's you know society's sake, uh, the ketogenic diet and a drug. So she was really one of the key people that invited me, you know, to this pharmaceutical company to discuss this idea of making a druggable form of the ketogenic diet. So I'll send you a link to their foundation, Susan Axelrod. Yeah. And, I, and I even have a picture of her. I spent many days with her, and uh, and I have a picture of the whole group together. 
And I, oh, cool. I guess that would be common knowledge. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it was the, looking it up now, the UCB Epilepsy Summit, and it was in uh, in Belgium. So, so that that that's kind of an idea of uh, you know that that gives you some kind of idea of the interest in this in the pharmaceutical companies, yeah. like how much they are they're interested in this. Good, good. That's that's awesome. Yeah, I remember listening to a podcast where someone you were working with was against the idea of using nutrition for performance, and they were encouraging you to make a pill. And you know, it, it seems like some people were, were were hesitant to embrace like a whole um, dietary shift. Yeah, yep. as a means of you know remedying some some things. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the pharmaceutical companies for sure. They uh, and many of the neurologists, you know, they get kickbacks from the pharmaceutical companies for using anti-seizure drugs. And wow. a, med- a medical doctor doesn't have the means to instruct a patient on a nutritional intervention. That they're not they're not registered dietitians, so they don't have the knowledge or really the know-how um, to to do that. You know, so yeah. So how how do we fill that? How does that gap get filled then? Like, if medical doctors don't know, and if it's just not standard care, like how how can that shift take place? Well, I think it starts with education and education kind of fortified by peer-reviewed research, too. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, as when I got into this, there was no cancer metabolism, you know, conferences, and now there's about a dozen cancer metabolism conferences, uh, many of them spearheaded by the directors of the NCI now, so just in about, you know, 10 years. So that's a relatively short amount of time where it was not even on the radar to where it actually becoming a priority. Wow. Um, uh, you know, when we spoke yesterday, we talked a bit about uh, using ketosis for glioblastomas when I was asking you, you know, what, what's one of the exciting things that you're looking forward to, and it was that potential application. But yeah. more broadly speaking, like, could could you explain just broadly how ketosis uh, helps cancer patients and helps prevent cancer? Yeah. So uh, we've known for quite some time that can- cancer metabolism or tumor metabolism is distinctly different from normal healthy cell metabolism in that the the fuels that cancer cells use are preferentially glucose and to some extent glutamine, an amino acid, uh, but mostly glucose. And we can, you know, oncologists have known this for quite some time because they can use an imaging technology that I mentioned previously, the uh, fluorodeoxyglucose PET scan. And when a tumor lights up, you know, very bright and has uh, has high intensity. That's a a demonstration that the tumor tissue is out competing the healthy tissue for the fuel source, uh, glucose, and basically, you know, is starving the surrounding healthy tissue of energy and sucking up, you know, all the all the glucose at rates that can be 200 times higher than healthy tissue. Mm. So. 
that is the ketogenic diet limits glucose availability to tumors simply by limiting sugars and carbohydrates in the diet. So you don't have the spikes in glucose that typically accompany a high-carbohydrate meal. Uh, most importantly, I think, is that it impacts the hormones that drive tumor growth, and that includes uh, insulin and insulin-like growth factor, IGF-1. So uh, carbohydrates spike the hormone insulin, and insulin triggers rapid growth and proliferation of cancer. And when you're on a ketogenic diet, you can almost completely abolish the increase in insulin that's associated with a meal because when you eat fat, you don't have a spike in insulin. If you eat carbohydrates, you have a pretty dramatic spike in insulin. So it, it blocks that response, and that's an important response. Um, so at the very least, the ketogenic diet is taking the foot off the gas pedal of cancer growth. You know, you have unbridled, you know, cancer cell proliferation with a high-carbohydrate diet, and that's really what many oncology clinics are promoting. They're telling the patient to eat as much sugar and carbohydrates as possible to maintain their weight during therapy, and that's the very thing that can probably lead very quickly to the, the fastest possible growth rate of cancer. Gotcha. Wow. And how does how does fasting, if, if at all, work alongside with ketosis um, for for health yeah. and for cancer prevention? Well, if a patient is healthy enough, and if a, just a healthy person, you know, wants to do this for cancer prevention, uh, it even works a little better if they're not underweight. You know, ideally, you know, have a BMI above you know, 23, 24, something like that. When you fast it quickly transitions your body from using glucose to using fat and ketones for fuel. And these are two fuels that cancer cells really can't generate sufficient amount of energy from because they need glucose to really generate energy and and to increase their proliferation rates. And you're also uh, suppressing the hormone insulin. If you're not eating anything, if you're fasting, the hormone insulin almost becomes undetectable. And cancer cells actually die if they don't have insulin there because insulin allows the cancer cells to transport the fuel into their, um, into their you know, intracellular uh, matrix, I guess you would say. So when you're fasting, uh, it puts a tremendous amount of stress on the dividing cancer cells and even the precancerous cells and and when cancer cells are under stress from an energy crisis, that can trigger uh, programmed cell death called apoptosis. So it may trigger a normal process called apoptosis uh, that could help basically clear and purge the body of existing cancer cells and precancerous cells. And we know that, yeah, that's the case, and uh, it's... It works particularly well, you know, if a person is in a healthy state and their energy status is good. Uh, Walter Longo from California, he actually did some studies where they fasted patients for 24 to 36 hours prior to getting chemotherapy or radiation and found that the uh, that there was far less side effects associated with the standard care therapies for chemo and the therapeutic response was greater. Too. And they didn't even change the diet. 
So they, uh, the patients were eating a normal diet. They just simply fasted uh, prior to, to having their, their therapy, their chemotherapy or radiation. And, it, and it, it weakens the cancer cells, and it basically puts a lot of metabolic stress and compromises their ability to defend themselves. So when you hit it uh, with, a, with a therapeutic modality like, like chemo or radiation, the, the, the die-off is much greater. You, you kill a lot more cancer cells. And uh, being in a fasted state also protects your healthy cells uh, from damage. So you have kind of a, a double a double effect of protecting your healthy cells and putting more stress on the cancer cells. Well, and, and does that now have a place like in, with cancer treatment? Is that becoming more popular uh, using these types of therapies? It, it is in some clinics. I would say it's still outside of the realm of normal because it completely goes against what we're, you know, classically trained to do is to kind of bulk up the cancer patient with as much, as much energy as possible so they don't lose a lot of weight. But they find that when, you, when you're in a fasted state, your body is much more resilient and protects its own muscle, you know, when you do go through chemo. So that's one of the benefits of it. Uh, so it's, used, it's being used by some major uh, universities now. I know University of Pittsburgh has clinical trials where they do intermittent fasting for breast cancer patients and and there's a couple of, you know, uh, registered clinical trials in clinicaltrials.gov right now that are doing this. And uh, and there's also 26 trials right now in clinicaltrials.gov where they're testing the ketogenic diet, which we know is a little bit more acceptable because it mimics the effects of fasting, but it doesn't deprive the patients of calories. So, you know, the for a clinical trial to be accepted and and actually, you know, to be a registered clinical trial, it has to pass an ethics review board, and the medical doctors on the review board have to approve that it's ethically sound to basically deprive a cancer patient of food for 24 to 36 hours. And that has, you know, obviously that, that's a difficult thing to do because it goes against the grain, you know. Yeah, yeah. Huh. So hopefully over time more, you know, the ketosis and fasting will be more accepted and and ultimately save more people's lives if they can, you know, if if, if hospitals can embrace it. Absolutely. And the way that I kind of sell it, I guess if you want to use that term, to the oncology clinics is that I showed them the evidence, the animal data and even now the human data and say, you know, this is something that can make your existing therapies, uh, which you are basically selling to the to the community, to the patient, a way to make your existing therapies work better. And yeah. instead of saying, hey, you know, I have an approach here where we can use a diet and some of these, you know, metabolic drugs and replace what you're doing, they don't want to hear that. <laughs> they want to hear about something that can enhance what they're doing and also knock down the side effects. So ultimately, we want to create a therapy that's equally or far more effective because uh, some of the things, you know, they do now have absolutely no effect at all, just side effects. So we want to develop a comprehensive metabolic-based program that's non-toxic uh, and is, is highly effective. And it's, it'll probably involve... 